this one for the British Commonwealth mid-heavyweight title. The great job on against Robbie Stewart. It's one fall, one hour. We have passed the ten-minute mark. Referee is half the way. Stewart appearing to be in control of things right now. And away we go with another edition of the Stampede Wrestling Show. Let me tell you good people something, and you big belly sharecroppers out there. As the old saying goes, batten down the hatches and lock the door. It is indeed wrestling time once more. Hello Stampede Wrestling fans, today on the Ring a Ding Dong Dandy podcast, dedicated to the honor of Stampede Wrestling, we've got a special guest in Chick Cullen, otherwise known as Frank Cullen, but during the days of Stampede Wrestling, he was Robbie Stewart. At the time that Robbie Stewart joined Stampede Wrestling in the late 70s and returned in the mid-80s, Stampede Wrestling had become a different territory. It was full of small, high flyers now, including those wrestlers such as the Dynamite Kid and Great Gamma. The two clips that you heard at the start of the podcast were with Robbie Stewart challenging the Great Gamma for the mid-heavyweight title at the time. These were a series of matches that occurred between Gamma and Robbie Stewart, and all of them were high-flying and very dramatic. Take a listen to that right now.
you got to love the old-time wrestling fans. Did you hear the guy in the back that said, Hey, Stu, what kind of bullshit was that? About the ending in which Robbie got tripped by Cedric Hathaway. Our next clip is from Robbie Stewart taking on Dynamite Kid. Two well-matched grapplers, especially when it came to aerial highlights. I'll tell you what a night it is here. Right now, Robbie Stewart, and for just a moment... The crowd does not have the screaming memes. This has been just an incredible fight. Robbie Stewart out of Glasgow, Scotland, 214 pounder against the Dynamite Kid, also 214 from Liverpool. Then Paul with a 30-minute time limit, and then Stewart up top. Wayne Hart, the referee, and we have passed the five-minute mark. Stewart in control right now. He rolls him, but the dynamite kid is on the ropes. Oh, the kid is fast. Rosenblum stopping away at Stewart outside the ring. Yet again, Robbie Stewart's match is subject to chicanery, and perhaps this is why we saw Robbie Stewart make a heel turn later when he returned to Stampede Wrestling in the mid-80s. Robbie Stewart, the dynamite kid. Our next clip comes to us from the mid-80s. This is after Stampede Wrestling is now rebooted. Robbie Stewart has come back to Canada from across the pond, and he is teamed with Bruce Hart to form a tag team in the Stampede International Tag Team Tournament, as you can listen to here. Robbie Stewart and Bruce Hart defeat Honky Tonk Wayne and the Cuban Assassin. That is the second time we've had champions beaten in the race. And what do you think of that, Steve DeSalvo? Another fluke. I, I just can't believe it. It's another fluke. Well, fluke or not, Robbie Stewart and Bruce Hart win the bout. That was uh, super to uh, pull it off against the defending champions. 
no matter what anyone says about them, they're a tough team. We beat them one, two, three in the middle of the ring, and uh, next week, if we get a shot at the belts, Roy, we're putting those belts around our waist and we're walking out here as champions. I'd like to say thanks to the fans of the ones who uh, give us that adrenaline to make it flow. Robbie, four years to be apart from Bruce as a tag partner was a long, long time. I was so pleased we found the chemistry, we found the teamwork fitted in so quickly. I'm definitely going to say that Honky Tonk Wayne, Cuban assassin, you owe us a title shot. And I'm going to promise all these fans in Western Canada that a change of hands of the championship belt is imminent. It's going to change real quick. Tell me something, are you uh, after the tag team belts right now or the Commonwealth? Your number one challenger there. Keith Hart is a good friend of mine. I'm going to let him take care of Gamma Singh for the meantime. Bruce and I are going to come. We're going to take right. care of the tag belt. Congratulations, guys. Great, great match. Championship belts. The challengers, Bruce Hart of Calgary, Robbie Stewart of Glasgow, a combination that relies on great speed, and they're up against the heavier champions, Honky Tonk Wayne of Memphis, Tennessee, and the Cuban assassin from Havana, one fall, one hour, 10 minute mark. Jim, what do you think of the scoring thus far, if you were to score? So far, it looks to me like Robbie Stewart and Bruce Hurd have the upper hand, although right now, Bruce has been taking one heck of a beating in the corner, the Cuban assass assassin, as per always. There's a two count, that's all. I was gonna say the Cuban assassin, as per always, as some foreign object that he's pulling out of those fatigues, working over the eyes and face area of his opponents. Look at Robbie Stewart going to work, drives this man off the ropes. Beautiful drop kick, knocked him down, knocks down the Cuban. Great work here. The next clip, Bruce and Robbie Stewart take on the tag team champions, Cuban Assassin and Honky Tonk Wayne. And in this match, although you can't hear it through the audio, some of the expressions with Robbie begin to show his frustration at this current tag team, and also at the fact that he continues to have the ball bounce against him, if you will. Well, like he had to throw a knuckle dusters in his hand. Referee didn't see it. The assassin, both of them wound up over the top rope. I don't know if either one of them can get back in. That was a good move by Robbie Stewart because Bruce Hart was in big trouble. Robbie Stewart came flying across the ring and They're sent the Cuban flying. Wiping it out, it's no contest, and unfortunately the titles remain, much to the chagrin of some of the crowd at any rate, with the Cuban assassin and Honky Tonk Wing. Valiant shot at the tag team belts by this combination. Bruce Hart, good to see you back, and it was a tough match. Very tough. They're, uh, they're a tough team, you know. I said a few disparaging things about them in the past, but they are tough. Nonetheless, I... I figured we weren't tonight. Uh, they didn't beat us, we didn't beat them. Controversial, uh, no contest. And I just like to uh, impress upon the official here that we deserved a rematch. Hart, Stewart, there's going to be a rematch with the championship match. The winner has to be declared. There will be a rematch next week. On the orders from the IWA. All right, all right. Robbie, that's what you said, Ed. 
We could have had him be. I thought I was helping out when I drop kicked Bruce. I thought we could have pinned him one, two, three. They were too near the ropes. Bruce and him went over the top rope. But let me say, as long as there's referees around of this caliber, it's going to be a harder task every week. Okay, Robbie Stewart, Bruce Hart. Well, you managed to hang out of the belt. Huh? This next clip takes place during and then after a tag team title match again. And in this case, Robbie Stewart looked to have Cuban Assassin ready to go to sleep with the sleeper hold, but then he takes a pair of knuckle dusters to the back of the head. After waking up a little while later, he believes that Bruce Hart, who's now holding the knuckle dusters, was the one that did it, and he attacks Bruce. This is the turn of Robbie Stewart in Stampede Wrestling. confusion total confusion these guys are the best of friends and now Robbie Stewart is turning on Bruce Hart Robbie Stewart is going after his own partner they're hammering away at each other but I saw Robbie Stewart turn and I saw Robbie Stewart turn and I saw him look at the knuckle that says and then he went eight and at ringside there is Honky Donk Wayne urging Robbie Stewart to pound on Bruce Hart. Don't give me that crap of being a mistake. Week after week it's a mistake. That crap of being a mistake. Week after week it's a mistake. But I should have listened to Sandy Scott and John Foley a long time ago. I know sir, Bruce Hart just hates when he thinks I'm getting the upper hand, when he thinks I'm getting near a championship match, when he thinks I'm going to win the match, when he thinks I'm looking better than him. I get Cuban assassin in a sleeper hole. I felt Cuban go limp in my arms. I know he's not going to get out of it. And who comes? I see Bruce Hart beside him. I get in the ring. Next thing I know, I'm on the floor. Days. I turn around. Bruce Hart's got the, the chain or whatever it is in his hand. I stood for that. I stood for that. Ed, time and no. time again. No time for it anymore. If Bruce Hart wants to think that he's better than me, then instead of sneaking up behind me and doing it in the cheapest way possible, let him get in the ring. Fancy man, toe to toe, face to face. No see the best wrestler. I'll tell you, it's not going to be Bruce Hart that walks out into the ring. The following video clip has shown that Robbie Stewart has gone full-fledged heel now. He comes out with Foley's army, there's J.R. Foley. His new partner is Chick Scott, who's come from the UK as well, and they will form a formidable tag team over the coming weeks in Stampede Wrestling. Well, Robbie Stewart has developed some funny friends. What do you mean by funny friends, Mr. Wilder? You know Wilder? what I mean. I'm very you proud of this boy. Bruce, the title tonight. I told you last week, Ed Whelan, I had to get even. I wanted to keep him with Bruce Hart. As you can all see, in all his capacity, as you can see, I did that. I just did that tonight. What I want to tell you, Ed, there's a friend of mine who's come in past Northern Ireland, Chick Rocky Scott. It looks like he's coming at the right time. This guy was three times the Irish champion. 
There's a lot of those hard brothers out there, Rocky. And with the guidance of the good Lord John Foley here, between Rocky, Scott and myself, we're going to dispose of them one at a time. Well, you're a, you're a cousin of Alexander That's Scott. Correct. There's correct. no love lost for Alexander well, here. Never mind the love lost for Alexander. I'll tell you something. Alexander asked me to come here. He asked and asked and asked. Wonderful. And I'll tell you something. Then this man telegrammed me and said, get out here. We need these hearts sorting out. Well, there's no better men for the job. Me and this young man here, we're going to eat them. Yes, one by yes, one. Yes, listen to Alexander Scott and the good Lord J.R. Foley, 1981. I wouldn't have all been right. in this predicament now, Ed. All right, all right, enough, enough. Chop, it might be the battle of the IRM. Ah, get out of here, get out of here. Oh, and what a struggle it is. The combination of Robbie Stewart of Glasgow and Chick Scott of Belfast against Broussard of Calgary and Mr. Hito of Tokyo. And thus far, that old term, ring-a-ding-dong dandy, certainly applies. The vendetta between Robbie Stewart and Bruce Hart has been clear-cut tonight. We've seen a lot of evidence of the bad feelings that stems back to a couple of weeks ago, and it shows no sign of diminishing. Well, that is Chick Scott, the newcomer, against Tito, drives oh. the to Stewart. At ringside, we're nearing the 10-minute mark. There's a 30-minute time limit. It's one fall, of course. Atomic drop, down he goes. There have been two yellow cards already issued to the team of Chick Scott and Robbie Stewart. They've uh, been using very questionable tactics, and yet referee Rod Hader has been oblivious to most of them. And he's the subject of the letter of the week, Ed Whalen. During the 80s, Chick Cullen, as he was known in the UK, was a two-time British heavy middleweight champion. And also, during the 80s and 90s, he was a two-time world heavy middleweight champion. He had many great competitors to face in the UK. I'm going to give you a couple of clips here. One is against the great Johnny Saint, perhaps the greatest technical wrestler in the history of pro wrestling period. And the second is against the great showman and a fantastic wrestler named Mark Rollerball Rocco. Also during this, I want you to get a sense of Robbie Stewart's background coming from Stirling, Scotland. And he's going to talk about a show that was put on in Stirling, Scotland at the end of this podcast. And he is still very much active in the sport, as mentioned. But just to give you a sense of the international flavor of Chick Cullen, otherwise known to Stampede Wrestling fans as Robbie Stewart. And he might not be getting that title shot after all. Johnny Saint now going for the weakening tactics in the final final moments of this bout. Goes for a back elbow. Body check. Goes for a back elbow. Johnny Saint takes him under. He's got him, he's got him. Two. He's got him. With that same leg lever, he's got him down. Exhausted, totally exhausted, and Chick Cullen goes through now. You've got to have a back of his head. You've got to have a nice interview, Max. No, he's up again. Unbelievable. The man's made of iron. Chick's running out of ideas. Chick's running out of ideas, and that was right on the back of Cullen's head. Pain. I'll see you through my window, Pain. Here we go. Our cameramen are going in here, Max. I think the lens are in danger. Never mind us. But it's all good stuff. It's satellite wrestling from the Victoria Hall and Hanley. 
pile driver, special. Oh dear God, how, the, how these guys don't get broken next, I don't know. to the Ring-A-Ding-Dong Dandy podcast. Today we've got a great treat. We've got Mr. Frank Cullen with us, known as Robbie Stewart to Stampede Wrestling fans and Chick Cullen to those UK wrestling fans. How are you doing today, Mm -hmm. Mr. Cullen? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. So nice to have you on board with us today. My pleasure. We finally got here, eh? Yeah, absolutely. You were big into amateur wrestling before you got into pro wrestling. What led you to get into pro wrestling when you were younger? Yeah, well, you know, I uh, yeah, I was an amateur wrestler from the time I was about nine or ten, and uh, I always thought pro wrestling was a natural progression, but I soon learned quickly that it was very, very different. But uh, the reason I wrestled is because, uh, well, all my brothers and my pals were playing soccer, as you call it, or football, as we call it, and rugby. I was asthmatic, so therefore I couldn't run and I couldn't breathe. I didn't have the, the lung capacity to keep up with them, so I used to just sit and watch. And then one day in this leisure centre, this guy was watching what was going on behind me. I thought it was judo, but it looked like you know, they don't have jackets on. Then I realised they had singlets, so I said, this must be wrestling. So, yeah, the guy said, do you want to join us? And I was um, 10 at the time, 11. And uh, so, yeah, I joined and uh, I never looked back since that day. I enjoyed it very much. So I joined the Bridge of Allen Amateur Wrestling Club. So you were very young when you started. Was that with yeah. Crusher Mason and Oreg Williams, or did that come a little bit later? Yeah, I was 16 when I turned pro with them, yep. Yeah, 16 years old. That's amazing. I remember going there when I was 15. I was just almost 16, and I remember going to the show every Friday that he had in my local town, and I said to Oreg, uh, I know we'd be a pro wrestler, and he just kept telling me to fuck off, you know, fuck off, fuck off. You know? <laughs> and I kept going back to him. I thought, well, he keeps coming back for more. So eventually they gave me a tryout, and and they said I was the, the drizzling shit, you know, and uh, go home and get a job, you know, do something else, take up knitting or something like that. So I, <laughs> anyway, I kept pestering him, and uh, by the time I just turned 17, uh, or 16 and a half, they took me on board and I moved from Scotland to Rail in North Wales where they were based. And that was the start of my career. Excellent. How was training as a teenager? It was good. You know, there was no uh, organized wrestling gyms back in those days as, as, as they are now, you know, wrestling schools or performance centers or academies. It was, uh, the, the ring was up in Oreg's garage at the back of his house. And uh, so I used to rely on wrestlers coming in and out the town that would take me in the ring and help teach me, you know, or he could only teach me so much. Um, so, yeah, so Crusher Mason was one of our resident um, heels, or the Mighty Chang, as he was called. Fantastic professional wrestler, a fantastic fella, a great guy. So I was very, very fortunate to uh, be trained with him. And after my first six months there, we went on tour of Spain. We were wrestling in bull rings. I'm thinking we're going to wrestle in front of thousands of people who have hit the big time. I'm only not even 17 yet. When we got there, it was these old uh, bull rings that nobody had used in years, and uh, sometimes nobody would show up. Sometimes 20 people would show up. But my job there was to get the ring up quickly and every day in the middle of the bull ring because uh, the quicker I got the ring up, quicker somebody could come in and start teaching me. So um, it was a, a lesson well spent, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Did you take a lot of hard knocks in those years? 
Oh, yes, I did. And uh, some people were sent in deliberately just to kick my ass. And, uh, you know, I took it. I took it on the chin. I rebelled a couple of times. And plus um, to my regret. And uh, But it was a good learning curve. Absolutely. Now, Bruce Hart often is credited with bringing Dynamite over from the uh, UK to Canada. He <laughs> says that he played a role with bringing you to Stampede. Can you tell us about how that happened? How did you end up being um, coming over the pond? How did that happen for you? Yeah, well, um, I know Bruce had been over for joint promotions a few times, and I hadn't really wrestled for joint promotions at that time. But having said that, we all knew who the opposition guys were. We knew who the mainstream joint promotions guys were, the TV guys. Everybody kind of knew everybody. I knew Dynamite, I knew Davey, and everybody like that. But um, I hadn't met Bruce at that point, but he knew about me. Um, I know for a fact also that John Quinn put in a good word with Bruce for me as the Adrian Street. Some of your first matches were with Adrian Street, in fact. He wasn't as flamboyant back then. Did you know him in the UK before you came over? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wrestled him quite a lot in the UK when I first before I came over. I was 21 by the time I got to Stampede Wrestling, so I'd been in the job five years. So, yeah, I wrestled with Adrian a lot, and he was one of Oreg's main heels at the time. So, yeah, especially when it came to Scotland, right, because it was like Adrian Street, like Mr. Flamboyant against Scotland's new Wonder Kid thing. Like, you know, <laughs> I made my debut apparently for three years on the posters, making his debut at this time, making his debut at that time. Mm. So, yeah, that's how it was, yeah. So, I got to know Adrian pretty well. Mm. Now, during your first years in Stampede, some of your best matches were with Bruce Hart and Dynamite. Who do you think you worked with the best? Who did you mesh with the best in the ring? Um, well, I. <sighs> Depends what type of wrestling match. See, coming from Europe, we, we all had different styles of wrestling, right? We we were capable of going in and doing a babyface versus babyface match, or we were capable of going in and being a heel, or going in and being a babyface. We were very um, we were very flexible. We were very uh, accomplished in, in our training and stuff. So uh, as a, a babyface heel match, I, I had great matches with Gamma Singh, for example. And I still uh, – value that guy's experience and his friendship to this day. He's an amazing guy. As a babyface match, I was able to give him a David boy, and we had a good few good uh, UK, European-style wrestling matches, you know. And um, when I started working heel against Bruce, I mean, they, they went over pretty well too. So I was able to use all the various styles that I had learned by that time to my advantage there. So, yeah. Now, during mm-hmm. your, your first run in Stampede, you were a face, of course, but then you mm-hmm. had a heel turn in the mid-80s. Was that your idea? Yeah. Did Bruce bring that up to you? How was that decided it, 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 was, it, was, it was my idea, and um, I remember going back home after the first trip there and, and sent to John Quinn. I said, thanks for sending me. I enjoyed it. It was great, good time and stuff. But, uh, you know, as long as you're a, a baby face, you're never going to get anywhere over there because all the art boys are baby faces, right? So I said, uh, I think when I go back, I think I'll speak to Bruce and see him do a turn and just see if he can get further up the car a bit because you always want to improve yourself, right? You want to develop and you want to progress. So uh, I suggested it and he went for it, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought you were very effective as a heel. Did you prefer being a heel? Over there I did, yeah, because it was easy. It was uh, it was easy to get heat over there with, with the Hart brothers because they, they were over big time, right? They were, I just had to mention the name. And so, yeah, it was easy to get heat there. Uh, when I came back, I tried it a few times. Um, but I preferred being a face here because we had really strong heels already. Rollerball, Rocco, Fit Finlay. Um, we, we had all the top guys here at the time, so it was much easier to be a face against them, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, of course, Stampede is famous for its road trips. Road oh, trips yeah. all over the prairies, <laughs> long trips, copious oh, yeah. amounts of booze. 
Do you have any good stories about your trips on the road with the hearts, dynamite? Yes. Yeah, some of them were booze and sex and drugs and rock and roll. We mean it was KFC chicken and booze, you know, that was all that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we had some good trips, you know, and, and uh, gosh, way too many to mention. Of course, the Regina trips were epic, summer or winter. And um, depending who was in the bus, because at that time it was a babyface bus, there was a heel bus, and if you were caught crossing over, certainly around the arena, you were you got your butt kicked, but... Um, down the road, they used to stop and change over because there was buddies and there was buddies and there was people who got on with each other. And was, so anyway, down the road, about they'd mix and stuff. But um, yeah, it was uh, quite, <laughs> what can I tell you, without getting in trouble, I don't know. Well, uh, poor John Foley's no longer here, Dynamite's no longer here, God bless the both of them. But, um, you know, we'd, uh, John would be at the back of the bus and he was cheap and he'd never want to buy a beer, but he sure was good at drinking them. So uh, uh, this wig and actor, uh, uh, can you send me up a beer, Tommy? And Tommy goes, yeah, no problem, John. So Tommy would take the top off the bottle of beer and pass it back, all these rows of seats. And every time it got, uh, came to a row, somebody else would put something else in the beer. And by the time it got to John, it was like a Molotov cocktail, you know. And, it's <laughs> <laughs> and he was in the back, and he was absolutely pie-eyed and wired after about three beers. You know, and he was, was a seasoned drinker, but it just... Poor John, they said he was a drug addict for 20 years and they didn't even know it, you know, just because all these guys were loading shit into him. But, yeah, he was a funny guy, you know, and uh, he was a tough old bugger in his day, especially in Britain. He was very, very well respected uh, amongst the people like uh, Billy Robinson and Lou Thez and stuff. John was a bit of a shooter, you know, but um, he was past his best from his wrestling days by the time I got there, but he was certainly a, a big character, over big time as a heel, because he knew the psychology of the business. He did. I saw some of his wrestling from the 70s. He was actually very yeah. scientific. He was quite good in the ring. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah. But as far as shoot wrestling or wigging wrestling, they call it, he um, catches catch can. He was a tough, you know, the old miner style wrestling back in the Lancashire mines and stuff in the days, which is still going on, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he, uh, yeah, he was very good. Mm-hmm. And a nice guy, too. So Dynamite and John Foley were very close. Did you have a mentor mm-hmm. when you were in Stampede Wrestling? Do you have somebody that you kind of had taken you under under your wing, under their wing, I should say? No, not really, not really. I uh, I didn't really, um, outside the ring, I didn't really mix socially with them or any of them, really. You know, I made friends in Canada, which was a good thing for me. Um, one guy I did get on very well with, and we did spend time, it was uh, Cedric Hathaway, or Ivan Pensikoff, as we know him, or Ron Pennington, which is his real name. When he came there, I mean, we knew each other from the UK, so he we became kind of buddies there too, and we'd share road trips or we'd go out for a beer on days off and stuff. But uh, from a wrestling point of view, no, he was never there to mentor me. Or um, So, yeah, I just used to take it as a come. If anybody wanted to give me advice, I was there with both ears open and my mouth shut and listening, you know. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. good. Now, I know you were close with Dynamite at different times. Did you keep in touch with him when he moved back to England in 91 when he kind of – Shut down most of his wrestling career? Yes, I did. In fact, I wrestled a lot with him when he came back. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, I felt sorry for him when I saw him. He, he was a third of the size of the guy that he used to be. And even the audiences, mainly uh, in, in the main, didn't really believe it was a real dynamite kid. So uh, I know he had done good for me when I was there. So I made sure I put him over when he came back. And, and I figured I worked heel on him for quite a long time. Drew McDonald and I, and there was... Dynamite and Johnny Smith <coughs> working in the Britain as the U as the UK Bulldogs or the British Bulldogs, whatever they call them. And um, so yeah, I made sure I looked after him and I put him over as best I could to make sure they knew 
that was the dynamite kid yep yeah we stayed friends obviously through that you know yeah obviously he went through some rough years in the 90s did he mm-hmm. really we're, we're taught that he was kind of a loner at that time almost became hermit like did he have connections in england during those later years Yes, that's very true. He did become reclusive. Um, he uh, he remarried uh, some woman who uh, reportedly uh, or allegedly didn't treat him very well and um, took advantage of anything that he got coming his way and stuff. And uh, poor Tommy used to just sit in front of a window in a wheelchair all kind of buckled up, you know, and bottle of vodka and packet of smokes. And that was his life. It's sad, really. So during Stampede in 84-85, everything shut down. Stu took a break, of course. And mm-hmm. then WWE took over a lot of the wrestlers. Did you ever get into negotiations? Were you ever considered for a WWE run at that time? Um, no, because I'd left just prior, just prior to that, I'd left. Uh, Bruce called me and said they were thinking of doing a tag thing with uh, Piper. I said, well, you know where I am. If it happens, it materializes, give me a shout. I never heard anything more about it until I saw Bruce about three, four years later. He went, yeah, they wanted you to come back. I said, well, I told you, call me. So I don't know if that was legit or not, but I would have done it. Uh, and bearing in mind, uh, in, in the early 90s, when the WWE used to come to the UK, at that time, they had to have UK wrestlers on the show uh, for work permit purposes. I think there was a ratio. If they had, like, six Americans, they had to have one Brit and stuff. Anyway, they used six of us, and in that six, there was myself, Dave Taylor, Fit Finlay, Regal, um, Johnny South, and Drew McDonald, or Ben Drew McDonald. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, they were the six of us. So initially, we got, we got over really good money to, to go and open the show. Uh, well, we didn't know at that point it was to open the show. Uh, I think we did about six shows for them, including one of the pay-per-views and stuff. So we were pretty excited about it. But when we got there, we realized our... Egos were somewhat deflated, so um, they stuck us in this uh, electrical cover, electrical closet. Pat Parson thought it was great fun that he put us in the closet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, so we weren't allowed to change or, or communicate near or ch- communicate with the WWE wrestlers. And, uh, of course, Brett was just on the corridor, so with Davey, Dynamite, uh, Jim Neidhart, like all guys I knew. <clears throat> but they wouldn't let us near to talk to them. They kept us separately, and they put us in the ring as a six Man, tag match, three against three. They say, guys, get in there and do five, six minutes and get the hell out of there. That's That was our exact, that was our mantra, you know, get out of there, get paid and go home. Who do you they think didn't want to Who segregated you? Was that the WWF brass at the time? <clears throat> yes, definitely, uh, Pat Parson. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, they separated, and it was called UK Talent. They had big stars on their, on their doors, you know, all printed up like a, British Bulldogs, blah, blah, blah. We had a little A4 with a, a pen or a pencil. British talent stuck in the door with chewing gum or something. I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> Basically, they were trying to tell us, like, we don't want you here. Legally, you have to be here. So get in, get out, and see you. That was it. Mm, but we did about six of them in a row, six, maybe eight of them in a row, and it was good. Good payday for us. And then gradually, we were able to mingle with the others. They realized that we weren't there to create mayhem but it's ironic that um three maybe four of those guys went on to have a good career with wwe sometimes interesting to play what if and i always thought about what would your career have been like if you could have had some great matches with dynamite in madison square garden you know that could have been amazing at that time yeah with uh, dynamite or benoit you know because benoit had good uh, matches with him as a heel me being a heel but also as like wrestling matches 
because I used to get in with Chris a lot. I used to help teach Chris a lot of the UK style wrestling. And uh, Chris loved it. I mean, he wanted Dynamite to show him, but nobody would show him. Nobody wanted to help him at the time. But I said, I'll show you as much as I can. And, and I did. And we, we remained friends forever after that, you know. Um, but, yeah, I would love to have had matches with him and Dynamite in front of some of the big crowd, you know. Even Brett. I'd love to have worked with Brett, you know. Yeah, would have been great. So my only time I saw you live was in one of your Regina trips that you were alluding to earlier. You took on Chris Benoit that night. How was your oh, relationship with Benoit in those early years when he was just breaking into the sport? Benoit obviously idolized uh, Dynamite, but as you said, you had kind of a mentor-mentee role with ben- Benoit. Mm-hmm. How, was it to- how was it in those early years? Yeah, very good. And, uh, you know, I, although I was still pretty green myself at the time, after it's only been in the business five, six years by that time, uh, I always felt sorry for the underdog, you know, and I always wanted to help the guy. And I'm, I'm still like that to this day. I always help people. And uh, I could see Chris getting left on the course. So I used to talk to him, and he just, we became very good friends, yeah. And and it showed in a wrestling. So uh, he was able to give up and allow me to do things with him and vice versa. So <clears throat> it generated a good match. And then some people along the way get jealous. Bruce got jealous of that and split us up then. And <laughs> he wanted to be on it. Oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> Interesting. Did you keep in touch with Benoit over his later years? <coughs> I did, yes. Yeah, I did, yeah. 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 And if he came to the UK I'd go visit I'd go see him, go backstage and say hello and stuff. That's good. That's a sign of a good friend. And to this, and to this day I'm very close with his son. Excellent. That's Daniel. In fact, yeah, in fact I'm taking um no David. Is his name Daniel David? David. David Benoit, yeah. Uh, Daniel is the younger one, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. The one that sadly is gone. Um, yeah, David. Um, David's coming to Dubai with us soon. He's going to put himself up there for quite a long time. We're going to give him a really intense coaching because he's desperate to be a wrestler, right? Mm-hmm. He's just had a tough few years after what happened, and he um, he wants to wrestle and he wants me. He said, "My dad would have wanted you to coach me," so uh, I said, "Then I'm happy to do that." I like a dad to them all, you know, like Chris, uh, David Benoit, and even like uh, Smith Hartson, Matthew. Uh, and I do, like, I kind of follow them, I mentor them, and I love talking to them. I always try and help them. And so, um, yeah, I'm just delighted to be able to help him on his way. So you're, you're a trainer for a lot of people. You were responsible for Seamus. I think you played a role with Daniel Bryan as well. Yeah, no, I didn't really coach Seamus. I had a few sessions with him. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of these guys, they weren't trained by anybody in particular. They were trained by a lot of people along the way, right? Sure. So, yeah, I did coach him sometimes. And... Uh, Daniel Bryan, uh, I, I invited him into Britain. I was uh, I was running All Star for Brian Dixon behind the scenes, and uh, I'd finished as the world heavy middleweight champion, which had previously been the champion of Rollerball Rock or uh, Fuji Yamada, you know, uh, Kuichi Yamada. So um, I still had the belt, and I'd retired wrestling. So I said to Brian Dixon, let's do something for this belt, you know, who can we bring in? So I spoke to Doug Williams about guys in the States, and we decided to bring in the American Dragon. Brian Danielson, so um, we made him the champ. He was the obvious, made him the champion, and uh, we became friends after that, and we still say hello now and again. And so, yeah, tremendous wrestler. Did you see any of his recent work with AEW? I haven't yet, but I, I just know exactly what he's capable of because I've seen him before, and uh, he was wasted in WWE. He was wasted, but you know, for him, it was a, a means to an end. It was a great contract, great payday for him every time he went in the ring, and pay-per-views and stuff you know he wouldn't have got that anywhere else at that time but i'm glad now that he can take his foot off the the pedal if he like and be himself again which most of them can be so it's good 
If you watch, bear, his, in, mind, bear in mind that these guys got hired because of who they were in the beginning. That's right. Right. So then WWE takes them, then they kind of mold them into this different shape that doesn't work. And you think, why did they do that? You know. Well, Daniel so Bryan was around on the indies for 12, 15 years before he actually oh, yeah. signed with WWE. Oh, yeah. If you get a chance, take a look at his match last week with um, Omega. It was a stellar yeah. match. It was fantastic. Yeah. He was back to his I've old self. So I've heard so much about it, yeah, but I will do. I understand you also would played a role in training Paige. Did you have a relationship with the Knight family? Um, I never trained her. No, I don't know where that came from. But um, oh, yeah, I have a relationship okay. with the Knight family, and um, when they do their TV tapings, I, I'm sort of backstage. Uh, I run it backstage. I produce the show and stuff. So yeah, I, I've wrestled uh, with most of them. Her brothers, her father, uh, her cousins, her nephews. I've wrestled with all of them. And uh, obviously she was there a lot of the time, but she was a young lady at the time and her mom and stuff. So, yeah, I'm very, I'm very close with that family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you look back on some of your UK wrestlings, the world in sport days, you had fantastic matches with guys like Robbie Brookside, Johnny Saint, mm-hmm. Fit Finley, yeah. Rollerball Rocco. Rocco's matches in particular stuck out for me. I thought your matches mm-hmm. with Rocco were stellar. How was it to work yeah. with him? It was great. I loved every minute of it. Um, I used the word chemistry. We had the chemistry. That's something that uh, money can't buy. You know, all the experience in the world could never always add up to chemistry. So uh, we had that chemistry and uh, we we made it. You know, nowadays, the guys go in the ring and they have to talk for three days before the match. They work the match out, right? I know guys like Tatanka, for example, used to phone the office in England in the morning, Brian Dixon, 10 o'clock in the morning. Brian Dixon just got in from a long road trip the night before. Hey, Brian, who am I on with tonight? Brian goes, oh, for God's sake, Tatanka, you know, it's only breakfast time. He wanted to know so that he could call that person and go through his match. Right. So, so with Rocco and Finlay and Johnny Saint and all these guys and even Brookside and, and Darren Matthews or Steve Regal, William Regal, there was none of that. There was none of that because part of our training, and Dynamite was the exact same, there was no, uh, we could ad-lib the whole show, the whole match. Uh, you could just sit and talk about a finish. Oh, I'll throw that spot and that spot in. Okay, you don't know when it's coming. You just know it's coming. But it still flowed seamlessly. And um, nowadays, the uh, the Americans, or the American-style wrestlers, they want to work everything out. And nine times out of ten, they're the ones that forget most of it themselves anyway. Right. That's the sense yeah. I get from watching WWE nowadays. It's kind of like paint by numbers. They've been oh, planning yeah. this for hours. They've practiced it several yeah. times. Versus the old-style wrestling, the territorial wrestling, where, as you said, it was mm-hmm. ad-lib. It was making a Picasso yeah. in the ring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nowadays, it's just like tick-tock. It's like watching a tennis match. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Whereas uh, with the ad-libbers, you didn't know what was coming next. And uh, and people say, oh, but, well, well, there was no story. Well, of course there was a story. You know, you took the heat. You made your attempted comeback, attempt comeback. And eventually, you listen to the crowd, which is something they don't do nowadays. You listen to the crowd. They're calling the shots, really. And you know when the crowd's ready for the big pop, then you give it to them, right? Mm-hmm. You were British or world mid-heavyweight champion several times in the UK. Do you have yes. some good memories from that time? What was your favorite match to go through at that time? Yeah, well, that was um, I, I won it from Rocco on two occasions. I won it from uh, Yamada on one occasion, and I won it from Brookside on one occasion. So... Um, yeah, it was part of the journey, right? You know, it, was, um, it wasn't like uh, WWE where you get to ride on the first class on the jet home or or you get a free ride to the show from the, 
know, limo. <clears throat> it was just another job, you know, like, you know, and the promoter looked after you. If you liked you, he looked after you for doing these matches and stuff. But um, it was just good to be recognized, put it that way. It was good to, that the guys who were already the champions thought, well, this is a good enough guy for to pass it on to and stuff and keep it going and so on and so forth. So, yeah, to be re- to be recognized for that is, is, is not a bad thing. It knows you kind of did your job well, right? Now, I consider you to be a great technical wrestler, but you face so many great technical mat wrestlers. My personal, mm-hmm. my personal feeling that Johnny Saint is perhaps the greatest technical wrestler. What, what would you say? Who would you pick as the the best of all time in that realm? Yes, he definitely was at that time. Absolutely, John Cortez was another one in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Hayward, who was an ex Olympian in the UK. Um, yeah, Johnny Saint, who else? There were a few, a lot of the lightweight guys, you know, and uh, they were really good at their craft, you know. Uh, there's a kid coming through now. In fact, he's the, I laugh because I say to him, you're like the modern day uh, Triple H because you married the promoter's daughter. So <laughs> Dean Allmark in the UK, Dino, he married Brian Dixon's daughter and uh, the whole thing is still a very successful um, wrestling promotion after 50 years. But uh, Dean is nowadays, I would say, the most technical wrestler I've ever seen overall, even even over Johnny Saint. <clears throat> he wasn't around at the time of Johnny Saint, but the stuff in this kid is so innovative. He invents stuff that, that even some of the guys you see on TV are taken from him. They're watching him. He sends They send him videos, show me something new. He sends it to them. And he's just a young guy. He's like, he's 30. You'd be lucky if he's 30. Um, early 30s maybe but he's a nice guy and he is probably the most talented gifted wrestler that I've ever met what do you think was so great about Johnny Saint was it his training was it his uh, education on the fly what what made him so great uh, his fitness he he, uh, he was a machine and he never gained an ounce of weight all through his career you know but he uh, he could he could take that stuff he took it from George Kidd he used to be a Scottish wrestler called George Kidd, and he was the original that did that kind of stuff just a bit before my time. But Saint, he was the natural, uh, he was a natural guy to take over from George Kidd, and he did it very, very well and made it look believable at the time. I'm not sure people would get it now, the up and down, up and down, hand behind the back stuff now, but he, he certainly pioneered that style of wrestling, and uh, he was the first person I ever knew that gave a wrestling move a name. Now they've all got names for everything, and I'm I'm, I'm lost completely. Right. But John had like a a movie be called the the Lady in the Lake, the Russ Abbott, or the Rollover Beethoven. He just had to say that to me, and I knew what the next two three minutes was. Right, so and it was great. I loved it. And um, but I guys used to get and do wrestling matches with him, and just try and but I used to try and make him look like. Better. My job is to make him look better. That, that was the kind of thing I like to do. I'd like to make John look more spectacular than he was mm-hmm. already. You faced off with a lot of great Japanese wrestlers as well. I think you were in Stampede yeah. around the same time as Kichi Yamada or Justin Liger as we know him. Who would you rate up there as one of the best Japanese wrestlers you faced? Yeah, he, he definitely was one of the best talents I've, I've, I've wrestled. Um, Mr. Hito was there, obviously, and uh, he was in the twilight of his career when I went there. Uh, I wrestled a, a guy in a mask over there called Kiwada. Um, I'm trying to remember what his wrestling name was. It's on YouTube, the mask, anyway. But he uh, he's a very good wrestler. I love the junior heavyweights. They were really they were pretty class. Yeah. Uh, there's one. 
there's one who's with New Japan now, and he was in the UK for a while. Um, his name will come to me. He's got blonde hair now with a big chain around his neck. But he came to Britain to, to learn. That's the days when New Japan used to send these guys out for two or three years, don't come back until you've got a shitload of experience, you know. So, uh, yep, there was a lot of Japanese guys came and went, and they were all made very welcome. Was that Sonata, maybe? Uh, 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 no. Uh, Naito? It'll come to me. Who? Naito? No, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. Okay. I read a story about... I read a story about you that in 2016, you had a kind of final steel cage match against the Mask Destroyer in Sterling. Yes, that's right. That's my hometown. Yeah. I did. How was that? How was that wrestling in your hometown for that match? Well, it was good. And I'll tell you why I did it. Because um, 40 years prior to that, I had my first match in my hometown in the same hall, the Albert Hall Sterling. And um, this promoter said to me, hey, you're in Sterling right now? You're home right now? I said, yeah, I'm home for a while. He said, why don't you do a match? I went, oh, I don't know. But this time I'd had a, a hip replacement, I had some back surgery. And I said, okay, I'll do it. He said, we'll celebrate your 40th year. So we did that. And it was to celebrate 40 years wrestling, 40 years since I had my first match in that hall, and 40 years later I had my last match in that hall. And that's what we did. That's fantastic. And to was, wrestle in front of a crowd is good. How was and here's me it was good. It was short, but it was good. I, I got through everything. You know, I got my suplexes in, and I finished by diving off the top of the cage, doing a splash off the top of the cage. Wow, that's great. And as I got up to the top of the cage, I became almost eye level with the people sitting on the balcony in these old British town halls. I could see my friend and my brother almost eye to eye going, you're effing crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I just looked at him and went, woo, and I dived off the top. <laughs> Jumping off the top of the cage at age 56. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Insane. Now, you've got a promotion and a training center in Dubai. Tell us about yes. the UWN. Okay, the UWN, uh, um, we're still in the infancy. The, the training center has already started. Um, I was there uh, March, April, May, uh, getting things done. And uh, we had a partner then who's, I would say it was originally his idea originally, but he screwed up and he's gone and, so he just had the idea, but we developed it. Me and the other two partners who are still in Dubai, we developed it. So it's going well, and um, we're just about to kick off big time. And it's going to be, a, I won't say what kind of investment has been put into it, uh, Arabic and American money, but it's huge. More money than I could ever dream of, that's for sure. So um, we're targeting the MENA region, which is Middle East, North Africa, um, based in Dubai. Uh, we're going to be running our first show before the end of this year for television and we're going to do three pilot shows for TV and we're going to get anybody, whatever, anybody that money can buy who we think is value for money and a good face and a good combination of putting bonds on seats but can still contribute rather than just come for the payday, we're going to try and get as many of them together as we can and mix and match them with all our new young talent who we think is going to take over the world. <laughs> I have a Pakistani guy and uh, he lives in Britain now but he's Pakistani and this guy has it all. He's the ultimate package. And I'm just hoping um, Regal doesn't spot him before I get him to Dubai. Hmm. So uh, uh, his name is Hesh Hedry or Sheik El Sham. But he, he is a fantastic wrestler. He's an actor. He's a school teacher. He's a philanthropist. This guy's just got it all, you know. Jeez, amazing. And I want to make sure that by two, three years' time, he walks down the streets, any street in the Middle East, and he'll be like the Pied Piper. The kids will all be following him. 
Yeah. Is your promotion going to be mostly mat wrestling based, or is it going to be a hybrid? A hybrid. Of course, we have to involve the entertainment, but it'll be a strong style of hybrid, uh, believable stuff. Um, I mean, I, going back to when kayfabe was around, I wouldn't even have said that, but I just said believable stuff, right? It should all be believable. Um, I'm not putting these guys that um, would put somebody in the ring who just go through the motions. You've got to, it's got to look believable. They've got to want to do it. They've got to want to take it. And um, so a good solid, they call it strong style nowadays, but I call it solid wrestling with an entertaining flair. Do you foresee this as going to be like a territory where you'd actually have touring at certain centers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's our plan is to tour the Middle East. Like, like Pakistan, India, and United Arab Emirates or the Middle East, they will be our, we'll be there. That's, that's our place. That's going to be our home. Yeah. And we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping that um, somebody like Tony Khan, who's of Pakistan origin, you know, uh, he might, because he likes to work, he likes to collaborate, and uh, he might want to come and look at what we've got and maybe do something together. I don't know. Well, we've seen the forbidden door broken down many times in the last year, right? Lots of interactions. You just never know what's next, eh? I think it's been positive for wrestling to be able to see that. It's kind of like the old territory days where you'd have some champions moving through, people moving around different territories. Of course it is. And it's a great thing for wrestling. And uh, if you respect our champions, like we got uh, Nick Aldis coming on, well, he's he's lost the belt right now, but with Billy Corgan at NWA, yeah, take my guys, look after them and respect them. Respect if they come with a title, make sure they come home with it. Absolutely, we would. Why would you want to go against that, right? Yeah. Somebody like Nick Aldis, he's tremendously technical. He's a great mat wrestler. Put he is, with, yeah. Put him with a manager, and I think he could be over the top. Yeah, I think so too. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if uh, PCO might be the, the guy for him or somebody like that, you know, uh, Carl. Or um, we've got people in this country that can do that kind of thing too. But yeah, Nick is a very talented wrestler. And um he uh, has great matches with another British guy who's out there called Tom Lam- Latimer, Bram. That's right. I've seen him, yes. They have great matches together. Mm-hmm. He's another one who's on our, uh, on our roster, yeah. Mm-hmm. Will you have any links to the Japanese promotions? Yes, we, we already have an in there. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's the idea, is to bring them, bring them all in and, and just amalgamate them. It's very multi, uh, multinational, you know, very cosmopolitan type. Um, promotion, you know, but everybody has to be able to work and work hard and look look the part. Most 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 importantly, you know. I think women. We never mentioned women dressing. Women dressing nowadays is bigger than it's ever been, and that's thanks to Dave Finley. Um, he's the one that brought all these young girls up and made them work hard. So now the the stuff they do now is more believable than ever. So uh, we're going to take women to the Middle East, and yeah, it's going to be great. Do you have any plans for how you're going to market women in the Middle East? That's got its challenges, of course, in certain countries. Yes, absolutely. And we have to be very respectful of, of those. You know, my, my, my partners, one is Christian, one is Muslim, and I'm a Christian, but we're all very respectful of each other, you know. Um, we won't let it stop us, that's for sure. Uh, we'll have to find what's acceptable when it comes to what they wear and how much they can be in your face, if you know what I mean. That goes for the men too. We have to be careful what they say. Uh, it can't be anything diplomatic, you know. It can't be anything uh, like rhetorical, or you know. We we have to, um, yeah. We just have to respect everybody out there because it's very, very, very multicultural. 
One of the recent Saudi shows for WWE did have a women's <coughs> match, but they were wearing full body outfits. What did you get a sense of? Did you get a sense that the audience was accepting of that? Yes, I think they were. I think they were in this modern day and age. And I think those who maybe were screenshotted on TV didn't want to look like they were enjoying it because uh, of fear of reprisals, I think. I don't know. But I know the girls involved very much enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, groundbreaking stuff. Why not? Do you have any plugs or any things you'd like to put out about the UWN? Um, not really, just except that we're, uh, we're, uh, we had to, because we, we split with one of the partners, we had to rebrand. So we're still the UWN, but the new website, everything's coming out soon. The old stuff is all still up there. That will all be pushed to the side very, very soon, and all the new stuff will be uploaded the same day. And uh, this show here, I don't know if you can see this poster, I'm running a huge charity show for a local cancer hospice near my hometown. Very nice. Strath- Sterling. Excellent. Yeah, Strathcarran Hospice. It's uh, this organization here. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. That's um, and it's in Sterling, and that's the Albert Hall we were talking about. We had my first and last match in the background there. Uh, this is the Indian guy that I was telling you about. Yep. This is a big Scottish guy called Kuma. He's almost seven foot tall, nearly 500 pounds. Very nice. And he can shift, he can shift like a like a lightweight, like a junior heavyweight. Yeah. The guy, Grado, the big that, I was going to say that's Grado in the center. That's Grado in the middle, yep. Right, and that's the man. Great talent. Yeah. So it's a Halloween spectacular show, mainly for the kids and so, but uh, it's to raise funds for this uh, fantastic facility at Strathcarran Hospice. That's great. That's uh, Friday, October the 29th. Sounds like a great event for a great cause. Yes, it is, yeah, and we're all doing it for free and organizing for free. The ring's coming in for free, everybody's coming in for free, and they'll get all the money, as much as we can give them. Fantastic. So thank you so much, Mr. Cullen. I wish you all the best with your new promotion, UWN. I'm going to be watching out for those uh, videos yes, coming out of the Middle East. Yep, thank you very much. Right. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure at any time. Thank you so much for your time in Stampede Wrestling. We all appreciate your work. Okay, big hello to Canadian wrestling fans and anybody else that listens to this podcast. All right. Best of luck. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. Thanks, man.